Welcome back to episode two of Hog Island. We had some great feedback from episode one, so we're back with a second one. We're really excited to bring it to you. Gary, we're back. How you doing? How's it going over there? Doing amazingly well, Dan. Um, feeling, feeling especially blessed to be on, on this sacred rock that we know is America today. Um, uh, just feeling, feeling very, very blessed that we are privileged to live in a nation where so many folks volunteer to wear the, the uniform of our armed services and, and by extension, law enforcement, fire departments, first, other first responders, all of whom are sworn to a duty to protect us, defend us, and uh, most importantly, defend our, our, our liberties. Yeah, absolutely. Very well said. Uh, couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, I think we had some, uh, no, I, absolutely. I, yeah. I, I agree. I mean, I seriously couldn't have, and we, you know, we do thank them all for their service. Hey, you know what? Um, let's, let's take it back. Let's hit the rewind button for a moment. One of our listeners to ep episode one um, had an interesting reaction and sparked me to, um, to tell our listeners what the GSA is for the uninformed. Yeah, that would have been helpful. I agree. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you and I, you and I, uh, that's a, that's a magic acronym for us, but it, it, uh, you know, for the unenlightened in the commercial real estate realm, the general services administration is essentially right. The facilities procurer and manager of the, of the uh, federal government's real estate portfolio. So if we, you know, just wave, just think about it for a moment, how much real estate civilian departments in the, the federal government alone occupy all over the continental U.S. and on, on Hawaii and, and in Alaska. It's, it's a lot of real estate. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that we kind of talked about it as if people knew exactly what that was. And really yeah. it is. It's pretty basic. It is. It's just the federal government's office portfolio um, for to, to sort of put it as bluntly as possible. So, yeah. uh, Gary, we have four awesome stories for this episode. So, I think we should jump right into it. Why don't you uh, start with your first one? Yeah, I, I um, I was, I, I, I was watching uh, recently an episode of uh, one of the great storytellers in, in our pop culture, unfortunately, who died too soon. And this was at a time in his career when he was actually smiling. We're talking about the great Tony Bourdain. Um, watching, uh, I, I happen to have the privilege of watching his episode from New Orleans not long ago. And he was um, sitting in, in, in uh, Willie Mae's Scotch House, which is a really famous um, soul food and uh, emporium in New Orleans and, and I've been there. Has, has legendary fried chicken. And to his handler, he says, you are what you eat. You are what you listen to. And it uh, caused me to go straight away to, to, to think about presenting a story that I recently read um, in the Philadelphia Business Journal about Nicole Marquis. Um, you may not know her by name, but she is the CEO and the founder of a, a restaurant group that is vegan focused. Um, the most prominent concept of, of, of her stores is Hip City Veg. Um, they operate multiple Hip City Veg units within the Philadelphia Metro and are also operating multiple on a multi-market basis in Washington DC. And um, you know, before the pandemic hit, this was a business that was uh, grossing more than $12 million a year. It, they employed more than 250 people, it, again, on a multi-market basis. And she was discussing and really on the cusp of, of realizing her vision 
to create a, a vegan analog to Danny Meyer's Shake Shack brilliance. And it that's fantastic food. I will try to throw it in. It's one of my favorite restaurants. Yeah. I mean, she's just, she's just got it. She had great recipes, great energy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so COVID-19 appears on our shores, right? Um, her mission to build out this concept, to nationalize this concept, to scale it, um, gets put on pause. And it's beyond, you know, it's beyond her, it's beyond nightmarish for them. Um, we know this because you and I, Dan, do work for other restaurateurs who have been similarly affected to as Nicole's business. She, she says in this piece that at the start of the downturn that she was shocked and she, she accepted the fact that she was virtually losing her business at that moment and that she needed to, the courage to do the things and change the things that she could, the things that are, were in her control and that she could start joining forces and having a strong voice, advocating for the restaurant industry, its employees and other businesses. And with that, she went about creating a series of ventures to, with celebrities and, and other culture figures, for example, Shake Milton of Philadelphia 76ers here and with others in Washington, D.C. to create programs to feed first responders, to wow. feed folks in, 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 who are working in healthcare facilities. And she has, she has served literally thousands of meals in, 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 you know, wearing this nonprofit service hat. And I, I thought that was a remarkably, remarkably positive and inspiring thing for us all that we're, we can do well and some of us do good after we do well. I think this is a woman who feels like she's doing good and uh, she, may, it, she may do well downfield or even better than she's doing now, but she's gonna live in the moment and serve the people in the neighborhood who, who she admires and knows needs her help. Um, there, she's now look, looking at a model that's going to put back, you know, put her her workforce back to work in approximately a year. She's had to lay off over half of that that right. workforce of 250 persons. Um, originally, she believed that it was going to be a shorter time frame, but that's what we're looking at right now. Yeah, I think it makes so, sense. I, I it, we've we've covered in in other publications that we've worked on together. Um, what's happening in the retail world. And it really is one of the most visibly and most significantly affected industries, retail, hospitality, restaurants, those, those kinds of businesses. And one of the things that I've been thinking and talking about is for a lot of us, the most that we can really do to help is to really do nothing. It's to stay home, stay safe, keep our distance from people and really just be cognizant of what we're doing. And for someone, you know, if you own a restaurant chain, you really can, have the ability if you're willing to pivot and sort of take a risk like this to do so, to do something really good, right? Like, like, like what you're saying. And I think that's, yeah, and I, you know, look, like there are others in, 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 in town who are doing that. I think, uh, you know, notably and in, in very, in a very high profile way, you know, Matt Kahn, we know him as Kanye middle child, uh, you know, brilliant young restaurateur, uh, a, a close family friend, and, and they've taken to heart the same service elements that are informing, what Nicole's group is doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, this is really a part, Dan, from 
what Nicole sees as 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 the mission to to bring you know veganism out into the bright light of of, of commerce. Um, I would say that you know the the most significant restaurants to open in Philadelphia in the last 20 years have been you know Veg and V Street by Rich Landau and Kate Jacoby, and then following not not far on their not far away on their heels was was Nicole's venture Hip City Veg and gosh, is it having an impact? And yeah, it's, it's, it's a unique impact. Yeah. So we're, you know, as Philadelphia natives, we're, we're all pulling for them. They really are one of the uh, success stories to come out of Philadelphia in the restaurant world. And it's, uh, it, we have them close to my house and I'm, I'm there at least once a week. Yeah. So, so <laughs> hopefully it keeps going on. So I'll, I'll jump in with our second story of the day. I want to talk about Uber. Uh, not in the way that I've been talking about Uber in the past. I've been hard on Uber as a business, especially the Uber Eats side of Uber. This really doesn't have a whole lot to do with Uber or the business itself. This is about Uber's office plan um, and mm -hmm. what they're doing with their commercial real estate. So Uber had recently signed a 422,000, almost 423,000 square foot office uh, in San Francisco. Um, and they're now four months delayed moving into that space. So there's a few different pieces of this story that I think are worth discussing. And I'm going to focus on the construction one, but the, the sort of, uh, side note to this story is that Uber is also closing as many as 45 of its offices around the world, including 131,000 square foot facility uh, in New York, where they do, do a lot of their uh, self-driving car work. So um, I think it's just an interesting side note that Uber is you know, retracting so much of its space. And that's a sign of things to come. I think as more companies, especially in the tech industry, do that as things can kind of go uh, off-site or off offshore. So I actually think that was a San Francisco office, not a New York office that they closed down. But the, the what I want to focus on here is a construction aspect of things, because mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't think that this is as, as widely talked about, um, at least amongst the general public. So the way that it works in these commercial real estate transactions, is, especially in the larger ones, is um, uh, your current landlord, if you're vacating your building, is going to backfill your space, assuming that you'll be able to vacate your current office by a certain date to move into your new one. Now, in the case of Uber, they're, they're supposed to take 400, almost 425,000 square feet of office space that they can't move into, which presumably means there's significant office space that they're currently occupying that they cannot vacate in time to move into the space, which means they will have to stay. Now, their landlord was most likely planning on them moving out by a certain date, had a construction crew lined up to start doing work, and ideally had a tenant ready to move in shortly thereafter once that work was complete. Now, this will create a very long chain, uh, essentially of of delays down the line, and could potentially cause problems. Really, years out in the future, I think, and it really hasn't been discussed yet. Yeah, I mean, the, the, this is the, the, you're highlighting in a, in a very interesting way the fragility, right, of the timeline of this very complicated choreography that involves, you know multiple different assets, different ownership groups, different lenders, and, and different tenants, right? Because on the, on, on the other side of, of, of Uber's transaction, both in the, in the space that they're in now and the space that they're relocating to, there are other, there are other end users in that space, presumably. Or who, or who intend to occupy that space. Correct, the user um, who's going to go into Uber's vacated space is also going to have to stay in their space because they can't move into Uber's former space. So it just goes on down the line. And, and in my opinion, 
in some, and it's going to be city by city, right? It will depend on how long construction was shut down for. It will depend on if there are additional shutdowns going forward and how quickly work can continue. But in some cities, I could see situations where this plays out over the course of a number of years, not just months. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, the an analogy is to musical chairs when the music stops. I mean, I, you know, it's it, it is a terror dome situation, right? And you're right; it could take a long time to cycle through, and there is going to be a lot of, a lot of roadkill. Well, there, we, you, you and I have talked about how one of the likely results that will come out of this, at least in the short term, is a lot of short-term renewal deals, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have a lease that's ending in the next six to 12 months, a lot of tenants may just decide, you know what, I'm going to sign a one or a two-year renewal and wait this out and see what the world looks like in a year or two when construction timelines are back to normal and we know what the world looks like. Right, but this, this is not that particular case. This is, this, is the, this is a case of a company that... It, it, you've indicated is contracting, perhaps even more so now than when it originally made the deal, needs that particular space. I think what right? Uber's doing is they're consolidating a bunch of offices and then yeah. closing some other ones. But uh, what I'm saying is that I think that uh, because there will be this construction backup and tenants aren't sure exactly when they might be able to occupy a new space, they may just opt to stay in their current space and wait out the construction backup so they can see how that all shakes out. Obviously, if you're in the middle of a deal currently, you just are, you're at the mercy of the system. You'll have to see how that kind of works I, out. I, I'm, I'm chuckling to myself, Dan, because what happens to the, the company that is, that isn't contracted to move into the Uber space that Uber is vacating or, or proposed to vacate? Right. Um, that, that's the domino effect that Correct. is impossible really to, to, to game out completely at this moment. We just know that we're living through something extraordinary um, you know, folks have all different kinds of, um, you know, jargon that they pronounce about this. Um, it's, it's way beyond force majeure. It's, it's something, you know, it's just an extraordinary sequence of events that, um, that are, are rippling through the entire commercial real estate industry. And by the way, it sort of ties together with, with my next piece. So let's let's hit. Well, how that. about that? Go right ahead. Yeah, um, this this is this is a piece that that was published in National Real Estate Investor last week, um, and and the title of the piece is "Loaded with Cash: Real Estate Buyers Wait for Sellers to Crack," <laughs> and this is a this is an article that um, gives us some insight into the amount of capital that is reportedly on the sidelines and ready to be invested in commercial real estate ventures globally. That number globally right now, according to you know, the, best, the best tracking that, that is out there in the industry, is approximately $330 billion. And, that, and most of that powder is dry right now, Dan. Um, and the reason is because there are, there's discounting going on in the market. It's already, we're already seeing that prices are coming down but they're not coming down substantially enough to, to draw on the distress buyers. Um, one, of the, one of the shrewdest of those buyers globally is a, is a Penn alum, right? Who happens to be running a company called Blackstone, right? And Blackstone, Blackstone's Jonathan Gray said during an earnings call about, about this, in fact, you know, they've got about 30% of their 538 billion is, is directed in the real estate industry. 
he said, and this is a great quote, distress takes time to play out. So they're going to wait because they, they have a sense that the market's going to come to them. Um, I suspect he's correct. I, yeah. I've said this a few times over the past week and no one's had a good answer, but um, I haven't heard a plausible story yet for how real estate prices will be higher 12 months from now in the commercial world than they are today. I've heard plausible arguments that they'll be the same or lower, but I haven't heard anything about higher. So I, 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 think it, I think it, look, I think that it's a fascinating, uh, it's a fascinating item. It's great cocktail talk. And as you and I both know, when we drill down into this a little bit deeper, it's about geography and it's about property type. Um, we might be looking at one of the, the, the hottest real estate markets in, in the last 50 years happening in, 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 in the heartland of this country as, for example, you know, manufacturing and industrial, uh, industrial real estate comes back onshore in a big way, you know, uh, you know, back, for example, from regions in Asia, you know, in light of, in light of what's happened with COVID-19. We just don't know. And obviously, the, you know, the, the folks who are in, in the business of, of uh, delivering retail uh, through electronic order platforms like Amazon are, are booming. You know, Target's online sales are, you know, up, you know, 250% from a year ago. So, uh, you know, this is, it, it, it's impossible to generalize, but I think that, that these folks have a sense that at least, you know, in the, in the urban and suburban multi-tenant office space, there's not enough blood in the streets yet to start, to start acting. Um, you and I have seen that in Philadelphia, haven't we? I mean, uh, I was looking at CoStar's uh, rent review from April, and rents in April had not dropped at all. I suspect we're going to see the same thing in May. And I think we'll see the same thing going out into the future for a few months before we really see a yeah. move if it's going yeah. to happen at all. You know, just, just to sort of put a, 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 another couple of punctuation points on this piece, the deal volume now is, is just gone into oblivion. Um, volume of deals in Europe, 65% lower in April than mm -hmm. a year ago, right? Um, in, in Asia, right, the, 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 the decline is about 35% over a year ago, excuse me, about 25% over a year ago. In, in North America and South America, it's about 35%. So um, it, it's gonna be fascinating. And you know, look, the, the, these investors make deals all the time. Um, some of them have made deals recently big deals, for example, you know, Brookfield, another big institutional real estate invest, investor in 2018, put $15 billion in, in mall, in mall retail, you know, right? Um, February of this year, Blackstone, $6 billion of, of, of dormitory real estate in the UK. I mean, these are, these are transactions where they, they're going to be looking for a hedge. Let's just wow. put it that way. Uh, absolutely. And uh, not, not moves you would make today. That's for sure. Just uh, yeah. five, five months later. That's pretty unbelievable. Um, all right, let's get into our fourth story. This is from the Pittsburgh Post Gazette. Although I think you can probably find a story written like this in pretty much any publication out there. This is about what does the office building look like when you get back to the office? Mm. I think we all think eventually it will happen. Some companies will shrink. Some companies will go away. They'll go remote. But most, a lot of people will be going back to the office at some point. And what does that even look like? So what we're talking does it about look here, as good uh, as our tactics office? It does not look as good as yeah. our tactics office. But, but this is actually, it's an interesting point that you say that because 
what we're hearing from a lot of our clients, and we're getting inundated with it too, right? I mean, when the only tool you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And if you're, if you're a design company, you need to redesign your office. If you're a furniture company, you need new furniture. But what we think a lot of companies really need to be thinking about is what is your landlord doing to protect you to make sure you're even getting to the entrance to your office safely? You have to pass through a lobby. You have to pass up elevators, elevator lobbies, hallways, and then you have bathrooms you have to deal with. And yep. no matter what your protocols are or what changes you make systematically within your company, you still have to rely on your landlord and other companies and other people who work for other companies within your building to act in a responsible manner to make sure things are safe in those common areas. So not only that, Dan, there, there's another component, not only you're, you're addressing sanitation. Let's leave that in, in, in the building lobby for a moment. We also sure. have to deal at a very high level with, with air filtration systems. You know, another component of, 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 of building wellness. If well, I you wonder will. though, I, you know, I wonder if we even have enough information right now to, these are significant infrastructure upgrades we're talking Absolutely. about. And I think that, Buildings are rightfully probably going to wait until the science is a little bit more settled about what exactly they should be doing before they start undertaking these infrastructure projects, or at least I would think they would. So we'll see what happens. I mean, what they're talking about in this article are things like temperature checks when you're going through the door, talking about bracelets for those who have tested negative, uh, some kind of ID system, um, limits on number of people in elevators. This is a big one that I've seen. Um, what a lot of people don't realize is that a lot of these buildings rely on cramming these elevators, especially during quote unquote rush hours, to get people up and down. Uh, in, in a safe manner and not have backups in the lobby. If you're limiting elevators to two people or one person or however you're going to limit that, you're going to have to decide or give people a schedule of when they can come into the building, when they have to leave or open well, the other, the other for the, traffic. The other consequence of that is going to be, we're going to see more people in fire stairwells because there are going to be folks who take that opportunity to take the steps. I would take the stairs. We're on the fifth floor. I would take it definitely down. Well, sure. You're getting healthier. You're that's going right. vegan. That's right. You just told me about that. <laughs> No, that's right. But, but it, I think it's a, it's something that people aren't thinking about. Maybe they are thinking about it, but it, it's a big deal about how are we going to handle these spaces when we get back to it. I know you've talked a lot about public transportation yeah. and about how that will drive a lot of this because they'll have to either add cars to trains or add bus lines or limit the number of people on these things. And the same goes for these common areas. I mean, how are they going to handle bathrooms? How are they going to handle elevators? These are things tenants should if you haven't asked your landlord or gotten communications from your landlord what their plan is and you're planning to go back to the building soon these are things you should be asking them well not only that dan i think that look we're we're in touch with you know enlightened managers and c teams all over this region in fact you know nationally as well these are these are questions on their minds as executive leadership of these companies because they're they're in there. Everybody's in the safety and wellness business now, right? It, the, the most important thing that these, that, that is on these, on the minds of these C teams is the health and safety of their workforce. And if it's on, if their workforce is uneasy about stepping into the, into the building lobby, right. And going through the, the building security and into the, into the elevator and in, into the common corridors and restrooms, that's not a workforce that's going to be productive. Absolutely. And I think you and I are both lawyers uh, underlying all of these conversations. And it's never really explicitly stated, but I think it's underlying everything is where does the liability lie for these mm -hmm. issues? If something were to go wrong, right? Is, is the, is your employer liable or the landlords liable? How are we going to prove these things? 
how are these things going to shake out when the, when the litigation does inevitably come and it will come? Um, how is that going to shake out in the courts and how are legislatures going to handle these things? Because I wouldn't be surprised if there's legislation about how this is handled similar to what you were talking about with rent structures and, and lender forgiveness and things like that yeah. may have to, may have to be handled, uh, you know, on the Congress on some kind of lawmaking level. Yeah. Um, and I, and I think if we're going to wait for Harrisburg or, or Washington or, or any other, you know, jurisdictions capital to, to provide that relief, um, we're going to be, we're going to be working from home for a long time. Um, and I, I think that, I think that, you know, management of, you know, of, of, of these, you know, multi-tenant office projects, owner, owners, owners, their investors, their lenders, they're, they, they're all aligned in the, in the necessity to not only assess and evaluate this, but to create policies that, that drive confidence, right? among their ten the, the C teams of their tenants and as importantly as those managers and C teams, the workforces, the workforce that that rides those elevators every day or or, or goes up and down the fire stairs and and into those into those suites. So it, I mean you and I can't overstate that importance, right? I mean it's 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 absolutely vital. I agree. I agree completely. Um yeah, well, I, I think guys, it's great. And I think uh, you have four stories about what's going on in the world right now. And um, hopefully everyone is staying safe out there and uh, enjoy their, their long weekend. And uh, hopefully we'll be back again with three more stories later this week. Yeah, we're, we're going to work on it, Hoggy, right? All right, stay safe out there. All right. Thank you.